thinking this week about uh, the sermon topic uh, before us. The title of this morning's message is Unlocking the Christian Life. And as I was thinking about this topic this week, I was reminded of the Apostle Paul's counsel to fathers in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21, where he writes, Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. There is a temptation as a father to, in a, in a zeal for righteousness, in a desire to see your children walk in the ways of the Lord, to avoid perhaps some of the pitfalls of our own lives, there is a temptation to exhort and admonish our children to a standard of righteousness without taking adequate time to show them how to change, to show them how to change. And what happens, if that's the reality, is that initially the children seek to honor their parents and to, to uh, submit to their parents' desires and wishes, but they don't have the power to do it. And so initially, they do it out of their own strength. They do it from their own strength. Perhaps a desire to avoid negative consequences. But what happens if that is the approach without ever, ever really teaching them how change really occurs, is that they grow frustrated. They grow disheartened. They can grow exas- exacerbated. Exas- say it again. <laughs> Exasperated. Yeah, that's the right word. It can happen. The same thing can happen to God's people. The same thing can happen to God's people. We desire to live a life pleasing to God. We desire a life of holiness. We know we're supposed to live a life of holiness. We know we're supposed to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. We know that. And we want to do that. It is the desire of our heart. It is the longing of our heart to, to live righteously before God, to please God. It's what we want. But we find ourselves falling short. We find ourselves falling short. And just like a child, we can grow discouraged. We can grow frustrated. We can grow exacerbated. Exacerbated. What is it? No, that's not it. Exasperated. There's the one. Do you ever have a word you can't say? The problem is, is when, like, 400 people are wanting you to say it. I'll say the E word, you fill it in. We can get discouraged. 
we get discouraged. And if that becomes a, a, a pattern, a, a habit, then we can give up. We give up on the Christian life. And the way people give up on the Christian life is, is often to, to begin faking it. Faking it. What happens is, is we look around us and, and we see all these people on Sunday morning with their smiles and their shiny faces and we think they're all doing it and it's me that can't. I don't know what's wrong with me. But I, need to, I, I want to fit in, I need to fit in, and so I will fit in. And we begin to fake it. We're all guilty of faking it now and again. Of pretending everything is fine when it's not fine. When we're really having a lot of troubles. But we want everybody to think it's okay. Brethren, these things should not be. These things should not be. Open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And I want to look with you this morning at just the first two verses of this chapter. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, unlocking the Christian life. Unlocking the Christian life. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now we could read those verses and wrongly assume that what we are getting here is law. That the Apostle Paul is just giving us a a set of standards to, to live by, and we're already having troubles, and so we're thinking this is not going to help. This is just going to increase the condemnation. But we would be wrong. If we were to think that we would misunderstand what he is saying, if we were to think that if we were to come from these two verses, feeling a greater sense of of guilt, despair, we would have missed something really powerful, something really significant, because like a wise father Paul is laying out for us this morning in this text the means, the means by which real change occurs in the Christian life. 
And brethren, that is exciting. That is uplifting. That is encouraging. That gives hope. It gives hope. These verses are are a doorway. They are the doorway for for the whole back half of this epistle, this letter. It is these, through these two verses, that that Paul opens up the rest of this letter to the church at Rome. Actually, beginning in verse 3 and following to the end of the book, he is going to lay out a number of the ethical imperatives of Christianity. That is, the way one must live as a Christian. It's not a free-for-all. There is a a very high and lofty ethical standard, standard of morality for the children of God, to be sure. But it is impossible. It is impossible without the enablement of the indwelling power of the Spirit of God. We don't begin by faith and then grow in holiness by our own self effort by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, by sucking it up. Guaranteed failure. Guaranteed. If we fail to pass through the doorway here in chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2, we will lack both the power and the motivation to live the Christian life. These keys that I'm going to share with you this morning from these two verses. These keys, and there are four of them. Four Holy Spirit-empowered keys that unlock the Christian life. Four of them. These keys unlock the door and enable the fulfillment of the rest of the letter. That high and lofty ethical standard of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a child of God. So let's look at the keys together. Number one, first key, remember the mercies of God. Remember the mercies of God. Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, I urge you. This is more than, a, than just a, a mere sense of earnestness. I urge you all the time. And I, and I do so out of an earnest desire for you. But this is more than, than just a man's uh, urging out of earnestness. There is, a, there is a note of what I would call apostolic authority here. There is, a, there is one who is speaking for Christ here, and that is Paul. He is summoning his people to obedience. Notice how he ends the prior chapter, chapter 30, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Just think about that. He's talking about God the Father here. If indeed all things are from God the Father, 
all things are through God the Father and all things are to God the Father, then, then we as the children of the Father are under an obligation to obey. We are under an obligation to obey. So there is, a, there is a sense here, for sure, in which there is a call to an obedience. But it is not a law. He's not putting law onto us. He's, he's going to crack this door open for us. So these are not helpful suggestions. These are commandments, to be sure. But they are commandments that open the door to the Christian life. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore. Therefore. We've said this. Many times, we'll probably keep saying it until you can repeat it in your sleep. When you see the word, therefore, we ask ourselves, what is it, therefore? It is not here merely a, a transitional particle, but instead it is pointing us backwards to what has come before, what has already been said. And it points us back further than merely chapter 11 and verse 36. It points us back, actually, to the first 11 chapters of this epistle. The first 11 chapters. What Paul is is saying here, essentially, is that the Christian ethics that are going to flow in the remainder of the letter here are theologically rooted and motivated. This, by the way, is how he writes. He always begins doctrinally in his letters and then transitions to behavioral, right? Doctrine and then duty. This is who we are. In light of that, this is now how we must live. And this letter is no different. It's just these two Verses here in chapter 12 are this doorway through which we burst into it. We operate as as children of God in a life of grateful obedience to God the Father for what he has done for us in Christ. Now listen, many, many, many religions have an ethical code. Many of them have a very high ethical code, a very lofty set of sort of standards by which those that adhere to this religion are supposed to operate. So a high, lofty ethical code in and of itself doesn't stand out. Here's what stands out. Christianity is the only religion rooted in a supernatural act. The only one. It is the incarnation, it is the death, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that took place in space and time that form the basis and provide the power for the moral uh, authority and effective uh, obedience to the commandments, the the transformation of the human life. It is Christianity alone. In that historical reality, that supernatural event is everything. Everything. It is the power 
to conform to the ethical code of Christianity. Chapter 1, verse 16, For I, Paul says, am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. It is the power of God. That God who spoke creation into existence. It is the gospel that releases that power. Therefore, therefore I urge you, he says, by the mercies of God. Now the therefore points us back. The the statement here, the mercies of God, make make reference, a clear reference to, to all that has previously gone ahead. Paul is reminding the the readers at Rome, and he's reminding us of what God has done. What has God done? Well, it begins in chapter 1, right? In verse 18, where Paul lays out first the, the dismal state of humanity where he talks about the reality that the, the pagan world has not that had a grateful heart toward God. They have instead turned from God in their ingratitude. They are, they are actively suppressing the truth of God, pushing it away from themselves and turning from the, the God for whom they should be grateful to a God of their own making that, that, that delivers them over into the most horrible and abysmal life of sin. He goes on in chapter 2 and he says, You out there who pass judgment, condemn yourself. For in the very things you contend, condemn, you show that you know the true moral code yourself, and yet you do not live by it. So those without the law of God, those with the law of God, it doesn't matter. Both are guilty. He rounds it out in chapter 3, right? By saying, verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. Not even one. He delivers humanity under a, a sentence of condemnation and says, we reside presently under the very wrath of God. But God in his mercy doesn't leave us there. Chapter 3, verse 21, and and following through the end of chapter 5, what Paul tells us is that God delivers from this, this state of sin and condemnation by the gift of his own son. He sent his son into the world to die in the place of his people. That they might be delivered from the power of sin. In fact, in chapter 6, it's exactly what he says. He says, you are not any longer living in the realm of sin. You are are no longer under bondage to, to the old ways. You have been crucified with Christ. You have died with Christ. You have risen with Christ. You now have within you the very life of the of the age to come. The resurrection life is yours. And as Christ rose from the dead never to die again, you rose with him never to live in the realm of sin and death again. It is a one-way trip. You are new. 
chapter 7. So stop being so silly by thinking that somehow you're going to grow in holiness by a whole bunch of legal codes, a bunch of rules. It is not going to help you. It is going to hinder you. And in fact, it's going to lead you into frustration and self-condemnation until you want to throw your hands up in the air and say, I quit. Chapter 8, he says, listen, the life has been begun by the Spirit. It is carried by the Spirit all the way to the end. It is by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God, chapter 8, that one lives the Christian life. That one has victory over sin. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul takes up the question of the nation of Israel. And he says basically this. Oh God, these promises are are amazing and magnificent and they give such great comfort and hope to my soul for, for nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But what about your ancient people Israel? They had magnificent promises. What about them? Paul undertakes to, to demonstrate in chapters 9, 10, and 11, and I'll be back to this in a couple of weeks to look at it in far more detail, but what Paul basically says is, listen, God has not lost Israel. Israel is in a state of present rebellion, yes, but God has not lost Israel. Verse 26, chapter 11, all Israel will be saved. Verse 29, why? For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. In light of this amazing reality, the gospel, the power of God, that in detail has been, has been laid out for us, Paul says, now in light of that, calling it here, the mercies of God, it is, it is critical that we be reminded of this because this is the means by which the power of God is unlocked. Listen, I'm a forgetful kind of guy. I'm a forgetful kind of guy. How about you? How's your memory? How's your memory? Why must we, as the people of God, be continually reminded about the mercies of God? That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do we have to be reminded? The answer is simply this. Uh, We're forgetful. We are forgetful. Now, it's not that we, like, totally forget the gospel. Right? We, you know, we learned it, and then the next day we can't remember anything. It's not like that. It's more like forgetting your father's birthday. More like forgetting your dad's birthday. Which means that, that when someone presses you, you can probably come up with a date. But it's just not on the tip of your tongue. It's not in the front of your mind. It's not something you think a lot about. That's kind of how it is with the gospel. We know it. But we forget it, or we, or we doubt its power. And so we, we need to be constantly reminded here. And one of the most significant ways that reminding comes to the people of God is as they gather together in participation in the public worship of the church. That is why it is critical to be here on a Sunday morning. It is essential for our long-term spiritual health. The writer of the Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23 and 25. 
He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And this all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to be together. Why? Because we need to remember the mercies of God. And the way we remember the mercies of God is in communion together. Because I'm forgetful and you're forgetful. And I need to be reminded and you need to be reminded. And we perform a service of loving service to one another as we remind each other. As we remind each other. So key number one to unlocking The Christian life is to remember the mercies of God. Number two, it is to relinquish yourself to God. To relinquish yourself to God. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Now, when we remember what God has done for us and to us, we... we, Come to realize, to remember that we are no longer our own property, right? We now belong to a new master. We belong to God. And we belong to God exclusively. Christians, listen, write this down. Christians have no rights, only responsibilities. Christians have no rights, only responsibilities. We are under new ownership, and the ownership is Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Romans chapter 6 and verse 18, he calls us slaves of righteousness. Slaves of righteousness. By the mercies of God, he says, present your bodies. Present your bodies. This... Uh, This term, translated here in English as to present, is a a technical term. It refers to a religious offering, a sacrificial offering. Listen, in the Old Testament, when the sacrifice was brought by the people of God to the tabernacle or to the temple, it was presented to God and ownership was relinquished. Ownership was relinquished when one brought their sacrificial gift. It became set apart to God. It became holy unto the Lord. Even if the worshiper were to to consume, and some of the sacrifices allowed this, for them to consume with their family a portion of the sacrifice that they brought. They still did not think that they're eating some of their own sacrifice. What they understood was, is that God was inviting them to share a fellowship meal with him. This is demonstrated, by the way, most clearly, I think, in the burnt offering. The burnt offering, where the entire offering, the entire sacrifice was consumed in smoke. Why? Why would it be incinerated? I think the answer is simply this. It is a vivid demonstration of the reality that it no longer belongs to you. How do you think you'd feel, by the way, if after we passed the offering plates, we brought them all forward, started a little fire, and poured it all in? 
<laughs> Might bother us, right? But if it really belonged to God, why should we care? Now, we're New Testament believers, right? Nobody comes in with a sheep over their shoulders. We don't offer those sacrifices anymore. We offer instead ourselves. We offer ourselves. Not merely our skin and bones, but the totality of our being. God no longer demands the gift. God demands the giver. The giver. By the mercies of God, we are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. This is more than just the idea, by the way, of, of, that we acknowledge we've been set apart to God. There is, a, there is an ethical component here, to be sure. There is, a, there is a separation from sin, a setting apart from sin. In the Old Testament system, the sacrificial animal had to be without what? Blemish. It had to be without blemish, without obvious defect. We are called to the same standards Our lives are not to be marked by obvious defects. That is, obvious and continual disobedience to the Word of God. We are to be a holy sacrifice. Furthermore, he says that we are to be a living sacrifice. You see that? It speaks of the voluntary and ongoing nature of what it means to be a child of God. This is the kind of offering that God finds acceptable. A worship of God is more than just gathering on Sunday morning. It is not less, but it is more. It is the overflow of a a life, of a week lived out in obedience to God. One preacher said one time, the problem with giving yourself as a living sacrifice is that you keep climbing off the altar. Some truth to that. By the way, notice that uh, Paul says here that uh, present your bodies. This is an ongoing presentation, a continual reality. The totality of who you are, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That word translated here in the New American Standard, acceptable, uh, logikos in the Greek, we get the English word logical. I think actually... um, It can be translated either as spiritual or reasonable, or it can be acceptable. I think the better idea here is reasonable. I think that's the better context. What he is saying is we are to present ourselves a living and holy sacrifice to God, which is the reasonable thing to do. Why is it reasonable? Because it is consistent with who we now are in Christ. Before, when we were united with Adam in sin and death, the the reasonable, logical, consistent thing to do was to live in sin and death. And Paul says, now we have been transferred to the realm of the living. And so the reasonable, logical thing to do, the natural thing to do, is to live like one who who belongs to the land of the living. That is the logical thing to do. That is the proper response in light of the truth that he has revealed to us in the gospel here. So we need to relinquish ourselves to God. Third key. Third key. Right? Remember the mercies of God, key number one. Key number two, relinquish yourself to God. Key number three, resist the world's corruption. 
resist the world's corruption. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. The, The grammatical a presentation here, at least in the original language, is, is given to us with the idea that this is, is something that is happening that needs to stop happening. Something that is, that is happening in the lives of these believers needs to stop. Stop allowing yourself would be the idea. Stop allowing yourself to be conformed. Verse 2. Stop that. We, we live in a world. You see it? Verse 2, do not be, stop being conformed to this world. The, the statement here is not to the physical creation. The statement is to the world in rebellion against God. That's what he's talking about. He's talking ethically here. We live in this world in rebellion against God. And you can liken it to the ocean. Living in this world is like swimming in the ocean. Anyone ever go swimming in the ocean? If you swim in the ocean for any length of time, it is predictable that you will get a mouth of, mouthful of seawater. Okay? It's just going to happen. What Paul is, is telling the believer here in Rome, and he's telling you and I the same thing, is, is listen, yeah, you're going to swallow some seawater, but, but do not swim with your mouth open. Okay, That's the basic idea here. Stop being conformed to this world. Stop swimming in the world that is in rebellion against God with your mouth wide open. Resist the pressure to be squeezed into the mold of a world that is patterned and characterized by rebellion against God. This world lies under the power of the evil one. It cannot and must not serve as the model for Christian living. We must not look to the world around us to see what it means to live in a way pleasing to God. The values and the goals of this world are selfish and self-serving. They are antithetical to what it means to grow in Christ. Now, beloved, one of the ways that we become conformed to this world system is by drinking from its filthy wells. We drink from its filthy wells. And for many of us, these wells are found in our entertainment choices. They are found in our entertainment choices. Oh, we... uh, we approach it by trying to strain out the big pieces. It, it, it's, it's sort of like um, sort of like a rancid stew. And then we pour it through a strainer and, and, it, and we get the big chunks out. And then we guzzle the broth that's left over. That's often our approach. Often our approach. must not be. It must not be. We must not allow ourselves to be conformed to this world. 
Listen, when, when, it, when we are being conformed to this world, we are not just disguising who we are. There is an actual corruption or corrosion of who we are. Many years ago, uh, we live in an older home, and many years ago, there was a water leak in the bathroom of our, of our home. And it went untended for a long period of time. It went unnoticed for a very long period of time. And what happens, by the way, is if you have a small a water leak that goes unnoticed and untended for a very long period of time, is it begins to do what? Yes, it begins to corrode and rot. And by the time we discovered it, it had, it had not only eaten through the, through the basic flooring, it had eaten through the subflooring, and it had eaten through the floor joists. And the only way to repair it was to, was to cut a hole in the, in the house, like right down to the crawl space. Start all over again. The same kind of idea happens in the Christian life. As we allow ourselves to, to be conformed, to be pushed in, to be squeezed into the mold of this world. A pastor said one time, and I think he's right, he said, Christians don't have blowouts. They have slow leaks that turn up flat one morning. It's like going out to the driveway and the tire's flat. And you look carefully at it, and you see there's a nail in the sidewall, and it's probably been there a long time. We need to resist the world's corruption. This is the, this is the key. Remember the mercies of God. Relinquish yourself to God. Resist the world's corruption. And then, finally, renew your mind through the Scriptures. Renew your mind through the Scriptures. It is not merely enough to stop something. It must be replaced with a God-honoring, God-glorifying behavior. Do not stop being conformed or pressed or squeezed into this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. Allow yourself to be transformed. By the indwelling Spirit of God. This is something, again, that, that it needs to occur constantly. Regularly. All the time. This transformation that he is speaking of here is, is not something that is brought about in an instant of time. It is a process. It is a process. And it, and it consumes the entire life of a believer. From the time one comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ until the Lord takes you home, you will be in a continual process of putting off that old life and putting on the new. Of rejecting the way of the world that lives in rebellion against God and welcoming with open arms the way of life. As a follower of Jesus Christ, as a child of God, because of what God has done for us in Christ, we do not belong to that age. We belong to the age to come. We belong to the age to come. So we need to resist the pressure to, 
to live still in that age and embrace the reality that we live in the age to come. Be transformed. Be transformed. We are no longer helpless victims. The power of sin does not rule us. Paul's very clear in Romans chapter 6. Because of God's great mercy in Christ, we have died to sin, he says. When Christ was crucified, we were crucified with him. And sin was broken. We are indwelt by the very Holy Spirit of God, chapter 8. We are new. We are new. Now, we still struggle. We still struggle, right? There is that ongoing, ever-present struggle. It is strong. It is insidious. We often yield because we forget. We forget the reality that this is not who we are. This is who we are. How to be transformed? Verse 2. By the renewing of your mind. Do you see it? By the renewing of your mind. That means we don't, we don't just... We're not transformed by, by waiting for the Spirit of God to sort of zap us. Right? The holy hop. No. We are transformed by, by freely and actively sharing in the work of the Spirit. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It is through the cleansing work of of the Word of God. Carlos read for us this morning Psalm 19, right? The first part of Psalm 19 talks about the glory of God on display in creation. The second half of Psalm 19 talks about the glory of God in the Word of God and how it transforms His people. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 that, that we are transformed when we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we see the face of Christ in the word of Christ. In the word of Christ. And we are made like his image. There is a reprogramming that has to happen. A reprogramming. Right? Stop being squeezed into this world, but instead be regularly transformed by the renewing of your mind. As you pursue it in the Word of God, as you pursue God in His Word, He, through His Spirit, changes the way you understand reality. Now, practically speaking, where does that occur? It occurs in, in time spent in the Word of God, both privately and publicly. It occurs through the, the singing of the Word of God. Why does a church gathered sing? Because we like to hear ourselves sing? No. Because we need to hear ourselves sing. You need to sing to me. I stand in front so you can't hear, but, but I need to sing to you. Because we need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. And music is a gift of God by which it carries that truth package. And can be easily remembered and drawn out in time of need. We sing to God, yes, 
But more than singing to God, we sing to each other. We sing to each other. Over and over and over again, repeating the great truths of the gospel. Why? Because we're forgetful. We're weak of faith. We doubt. And we need to hear it again and again. When you come to faith in Christ, there are many, many things you have done, seen, heard, and thought about that are vile and disgusting, that are an offense to a holy God. And the mind is an amazing thing because it's like a piece of photographic film. Any impression made on it remains. That is why it is so important to guard what goes in. So important. There's poison in my mind and yours. It is as we dilute that poison through the Word of God that we begin to, to be able to push it off and live as God would have us live. Think about it this way. If you had a glass of water and we were to pour some poison in there and take a drink, it would make you sick, if not kill you. If you were to take that same amount of poison and pour it into a swimming pool with 50,000 gallons of water, it would be diluted. It would dilute. It wouldn't disappear. It would dilute. The renewing of our minds here by the, by the continual and, and uh, um, large intake of the Word of God acts as a diluting factor. Yes, the photographic image remains. We can all attest to the fact that things come to our mind and we go, oh. but the more we fill our heart and mind with the Word of God, the more the dilution takes place, the, the more we dwell on the things that are pleasing to God, the less we will be tormented. The less we will be tormented. Our problem is, and so we keep drinking more poison. We keep adding poison to the brew. And Paul's saying, stop that. Stop being conformed to this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? That you may prove what the will of God is. The idea here is that, is that you, will, you will agree, you will understand what the will of God is. It is as the mind is renewed that we're, that we're able to, to understand and discern the very will of God. The will that Paul says here is good and acceptable and perfect. Interesting how he describes it here, isn't it? He uses three adjectives. He says that the will of God is good. That is, that is good in a general sense. That is, it is morally good. It is morally good. It is acceptable to God. 
Who's the only one who counts? It is perfect. The idea here is mature. As we put off the old way of life and, and put on the new way, as we, as we stop the intake of sewage and, and take in the pure and, and wholesome and clean word of God, the very, the very water of life, the Spirit of God uses that to transform his people so that we begin to recognize the reality of how God has made things. We begin to understand what is really good. We begin to understand what is acceptable before God. We begin to understand what it means to be mature as a follower of God. Now, the rest of this uh, book, Paul will reveal to us what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. He will spell it out. It'll be the remainder of this chapter 12, and it'll be chapter 13, and it'll be chapter 14, and it'll be chapter 15. So he's not going to leave us in a sea of subjectivity, right? Oh, okay, the will of God, it's good, and it's acceptable, and it's perfect, but I don't know what it is. No, actually, we know exactly what it is. What's a transformed life look like? What does a transformed life look like? Well, according to chapter 12 and verses 3 through 8, a transformed life is a humble life. A humble life. According to chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, a transformed life is a loving life. It is to be humble. It is to love others. According to chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, a transformed life is a submissive life. A submissive life. Chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. A transformed life is a pure life. Morally pure. And chapter 14, beginning in verse 1 all the way through chapter 15, verse 13. A transformed life is a deferential life. A deferential life. That is that it, it seeks the good of others above itself. It will, it will surrender its own prerogative, its own privilege for the sake of another. Listen, beloved. Humility, loving others, submission to authority, morally pure and deferential. That is the furthest from the description of a successful person in this world than you can imagine. That is the exact opposite of what they will teach you in business school. It is the exact opposite of what they will tell you is how you get ahead in this world. It is foolish in the eyes of this world. But it is the wisdom of God. It is the wisdom of God. And and we will not come to know it and to love it until our minds are captured by the word of God and transformed by the word of God till we begin to see things as he sees them. In your light, we see light, the psalmist says in Psalm 36. That's how we understand reality. Paul's given us four keys. Four keys that are necessary to unlock the door of the Christian life. 
What are they? They're this. Remember the mercies of God. Relinquish yourself to God. Resist the world's corruption and renew your mind through the Scriptures. We must now ask the Spirit's help in inserting these keys into the lock and turning them. May God help us. Let's pray. Our Father, the Word of God gives us everything we need for life and godliness. You have saved us according to your grace, your mercy, not based on works we have done in righteousness. And you continue your good work in us, transforming us into the very image of your Son, not by our self-effort, but by our belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the, the transformation that it necessarily brings. Oh, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that they would not walk out under a load of rules. They would hear. They would understand. They would embrace by faith the reality that it is the gospel that has saved them, that it is the gospel that will transform them. Indeed, it is the gospel that has transformed them. May it be an ever-present reality in their thinking and their doing. And I pray, Lord, for those that are here this morning who have not yet tasted of the power of the gospel. They have not yet experienced the power of the age to come. They remain stuck, enslaved to their sin and lust, unable and unwilling to change. And Father, I pray your mercy upon them. O Lord, reach out to them in grace. Open their blind eyes. Melt their heart of stone. Enable them to see the resurrected Christ in all of his beauty. To understand the gift that he offers them. And may they flee to the cross in faith. Oh God, deliver them. As you have delivered us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Beloved, go in the power of the Spirit of God this week. God bless you.